This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to Start Your Week. I'm Jacob Jarvis and here with me this Monday morning to discuss what news you'll be consuming over the next few days is bunker favourite, Roz Taylor. Good morning, Roz. How are you? I'm well, thank you, Jacob. How are you? Good. Yeah, good, thank you. Cold, but getting there. Uh, Roz, today is the day that Conservative MPs have been told they must tell the party whether they will run at the next election or not. We've seen them dropping like flies of late. Will this self-determined deadline hold or not? Well, I don't think there will be too many others today. I think if you were going Mm. to go by today, you would have said so already. But there will be a few more people who discover urgent family reasons why they have to leave Parliament, probably at some point during 2023. So I don't think we've seen the last of the exodus by a long way. Urgent family reasons being their family members have seen Tory poll numbers. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Of the people who have left, who has... uh... Who surprised you the most? And what do you think it means for Tory morale in the coming days and months? I think the one who surprised me most was Dehenna Davison, uh, the Bishop Auckland mm. MP, because she's only 29. And that's very young. And she did have a reasonable future, I think, under any future iteration of the Conservative Party. So that surprised me a little bit. I think in terms of morale, I think morale is already very low. What the effect it's likely to have on the Conservative Party is to free quite a few people up to be Mm. honest and not to feel that they have to toe the party line anymore so that they can rebel over things they don't like, for example, uh, housing in their constituency. and uh, Or, on the other hand, they might take a principled stance because they don't feel that they need to worry about whether their constituents are going to vote for them next time or not. So it could work both ways, and you could see some people behaving in quite interesting and independent ways. On the other hand, they could just check out and look for a new job. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, either way, you never know the situation of the Tory party, but I would say let's not get our uh, let's not get our hopes up. If someone were to go, you mentioned other people could. Who is your who's your dream resignation? Oh God, that has to be uh, Sir. I am afraid Christopher Chope, who is just. <laughs> He thinks he is the greatest ornament to the Commons and Commons procedure and is the most antediluvian. I won't use the word on a um, podcast that he's going out during the day. I I really, (laughs) he he has filibustered so much. He has been so reactionary in all the things he has done. And to cap it all, he is now 75, which you'd feel would be a good time Hmm. to bow out of politics. But hopefully the voters of, I think it's Bournemouth, will, will make that decision for him next time. If I'm still here doing this podcast at 75, Ros, you can you can definitely <laughs> force me to quit, like drag the microphone away from me because I, uh, yeah, something will have gone wrong somewhere down the line. Uh, when it comes to public opinion for the government, uh, we mentioned how bad the polling numbers are and you know, people clearly have, the morale is not great. But an issue that's looming over them is this wave of strike action. So the Conservative Party chairman, Nadim Zahawi, kind of shoehorned Vladimir Putin into the argument on Sunday and suggested that strikes and division are exactly what the 
Russian leader wants to see. Ros, the, the government's failed to settle these disputes. Are we now just going to see them try and turn fire and rally opinion against workers who are taking action? Yes, I think we will. And it's a losing strategy because it makes you look as if you're not in control and they're not in control. This is a situation which I don't think they they anticipated, inflation being as high as it is and pay demands being as high as they have gone. And they are used in the context of Brexit to pushing through things which are frankly irrational and stupid, Mm. but which people don't see in the immediate consequences of. And so that's why they've been able to get away with it. Mm. Strikes are not like that. People do see the immediate consequences of strikes and they see how they affect their lives. And the government strategy, therefore, has been to present striking as irresponsible, uh, as intransigent, and for those in less vital jobs, Grinch-like, basically, to say mm. that it will ruin Christmas. Well, I mean, what the hell does that mean? Does that mean that you should just wait to strike until January? Of course it doesn't. It's just a ridiculous thing to say. They also argue that they can't get involved because pay recommendations boards have made their recommendations and it's not for the government to do that. Everybody knows, though, that the government has power over how much public sector workers are paid. And everybody knows that ultimately, if things get really bad, they will have to step in. You mentioned the the government seem kind of out of control with this. Do you think another issue, though, is that more and more people are feeling poorer and poorer? So surely anyone pretty much who works for a living is just going to sympathise with anyone who is staging a walkout at this point? Yeah. And of course, Labour are very far ahead in the polls. And that shows how little sympathy people are going to have for the Conservatives line. I think the latest public opinion poll in the Observer put support for the nurses strike at 57% with 30% opposed, which is pretty high for an essential service. The RMT rejected another offer over the weekend. Does it look like there's any chance of avoiding festive rail strikes? No. I I don't think uh, there is. 8% was not enough for the RMT. I don't think it will be enough for nurses either. And there's a big, I mean, there's an enormous pressure here for the government. Let's, Let's be honest about that. If wages go up, the Bank of England will also put up interest rates. And we know that the effect that will have on the housing market. And that is one of the main reasons why the government is so desperate to try and keep these pay awards down. But there's a sense now, I think, that the country is falling apart and people feel they almost have a kind of, well, the NHS is in such a state anyway. How much worse can it get if nurses go on strike? Now, of course, it will get a lot worse when nurses and other NHS workers to go uh, go on strike. But the overwhelming feeling in public opinion is that the state of the NHS is the government's fault and workers are not to blame for it. Elsewhere, the online safety bill is going to go into its final stages in the Commons with uh, a ton of government amendments to be to be debated. Ros, what's this apparent spy clause all about? This is an anti-child abuse measure. The spy clause, which is the technical term for it, is client-side scanning, is basically a requirement for uh, internet companies to check images and videos that are being uploaded against a database of banned content. And then there will be an obligation on them to hand those details to the National Crime Agency so that the people sharing them can be prosecuted. Now, previously, as you probably know, WhatsApp was end-to-end encrypted, so it was not possible for people to do that. 
Now, because this is an effort to stop child abuse, I think that it is likely to go through, but there are quite a lot of internet experts who warn there is great potential for abuse here. This could be the thin end of the wedge where other material was added to the database in time if the government decides that it's undesirable and needs to be stopped. And of course, there's always a risk of false positives and the damage that could do to an individual if they were charged, for example, is quite enormous. Is there anything else which uh, concerns you within the online safety bill? And what within the whole thing do you take most issue with? The big change in the online safety bill has been a change the way the legal but harmful definition is going to be applied. Now, is the devil's own job working out what is harmful? And understandably, probably the tech companies didn't want to have to do that. What is going to happen now is that kids are going to have to be stopped seeing content that is legal but harmful, but adults will still be able to see it or to choose to see it. This is very, very difficult because things that are relatively innocuous in one situation can be deeply harmful in another. And what people choose to do with images and videos is also also plays into this. Over the weekend, We saw Kate Winslet, the actress, being interviewed on the BBC about a Channel 4 film that is coming out. And she is arguing that she wants to see age limits on apps like Instagram and uh, potentially TikTok enforced very, very strictly because she says parents feel powerless. And I think she has a strong point there. I don't think we thought more widely about what the effect of social media on kids' mental health has been and what the compounded effect of the pandemic has been on that as well when people were spending more and more time online. I'm not sure that legislation is necessarily going to solve this problem for us. While Meta in particular has behaved extremely poorly over the case of Molly Russell, who saw self-harm content on Instagram and ended her life, and the coroner made a link between those two things. While it has behaved very badly, there are wider problems in society with whether we are paying enough attention to what young people are doing online, and those problems are not solely down to the tech companies themselves. And if we want to ban young people from using Instagram, we want to make, say, a you know under-17s banned Um, rule, then perhaps we should do that. And I don't think we should necessarily be afraid to do that. We should say that these are applications that have the potential to do so much harm that perhaps they should be reserved just for adults. But that will require massive culture change because young people are spending hours and hours of each day on these apps. And it will be very, very hard to put them back in the box, as it were. This time last week, I was talking to Yasmin about Rishi Sunak getting tough when it came to small boat crossings and to protests. What movement have we seen there other than just sort of abstract talk of cracking down? We've seen some leaks about what the government is thinking about doing about small boats. And Suella Bravman, you might not be surprised to hear, is reportedly thinking of putting everyone who arrives illegally into detention. Australia style, this is what Australia does. And as always in Britain, we're quite keen on what Australia does, and then place a ban on them ever settling in the UK. So the aim is to deter, as it was with the Rwanda scheme, 
which of mm. course has been held up in the courts. The aim is to ensure that people who come to Britain have no hope whatsoever of ever staying here, even if they have relatives here, as you know, some of them might well do. Philip Davis over the weekend said UK mustn't be the UK mustn't be a soft touch and that we're in a new era of mass migration. On the other hand, uh, slightly more positive news is that migrants that, who have already arrived here from war zones like Afghanistan and Syria will have their claims fast-tracked in order to try and clear the massive backlog of applications. Turning to look at what's going on with Labour this week, the, the Lords have faced uh, continued scrutiny from members of the opposition, but in a, in a major shock, some peers have complained about that. Roz, Gordon Brown's Commission on the UK's Future report is due out today. What can we expect it to say? And are we possibly on the verge of a, a bit of a row between Keir Starmer and Brown? I don't think we are, actually. There were suggestions of that a few days ago, but they seem to have rode back closer together now. Basically, this is Gordon Brown's plans for an elected, probably regional-based second chamber, rather than, of course, the appointed lords that we have at the moment, largely appointed, of course. Some of them are still hereditaries, outrageously. And there were suggestions a few days ago that Starmer didn't want to go as far as Brown did. But as I say, I, I think he does. I think there's there's been a bit of a caveat where he says he might not be able to implement these plans until the second Labour term assuming there's a second Labour term. (laughs) And Labour peers, as you might expect, as you said, were keen to point out that Lord's reform always was really difficult and always failed. Uh, Well, they would, wouldn't they? I mean, turkeys don't vote for Christmas. (laughs) Where do you stand on all of this? We recorded a Bunker Daily the other day that made me slightly less gung-ho about replacing the Lords of an elected upper chamber. But it it still feels like something needs to change. Do you think reform is as key a priority as uh, a lot of people think? Lord's reform is, for most people, a largely symbolic gesture. But I think it's a really important symbolic gesture because it represents a break with the past and with the old-fashioned Tory past that I think Starmer might well benefit from. It's basically saying the old ways are over. You know, it's not that I'm not a highly, you know, trustworthy and and reliable bloke who doesn't start revolutions, but this is a break with the past that you can see. And it is a break with Tory corruption and with the days when people like Lord Lebedev, who I doubt has ever scrutinized a line of legislation, were appointed to the Lords. And I think for that reason, it could be quite valuable to him. And it also, it's, plays very well to his left as well. And of course, as we know, Starmer is always trying to keep a broad church in the Labour Party on board. The left have always been, have always wanted to have an elected Lords and that will implicate them as well. It works well. I I don't think he should put a break on it. Finally, on domestic news, there are two big cultural moments to look out for this week, with England due to play France in the World Cup quarterfinals and Harry and Meghan's Netflix documentary due out. (laughs) Ros, which do you think could trigger more of a national breakdown? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the large sections of the right-wing press will do their best to absolutely slam Meghan and Harry's documentary, (laughs) of course. As we've already seen, they absolutely loathe them, not least because they've taken legal action against... um, various papers. So 
I, I think in terms of the media coverage, it's hard to know, isn't it? Um, personally, I will be supporting France. I mean, allez les bleus, as far as I'm concerned, in these things. Um, but um, I uh, suspect that the documentary, the royal documentary, will have a massive effect on the perceptions of the royal family because they find it very hard to speak back to repudiate claims like this. And you can be quite sure that any claims Meghan and Harry make will be very, very difficult to practically repudiate. It could well lead to a bit of a crisis, depending on which members of the royal family they criticise most strongly. It could also dent the popularity of William and uh, Kate, the Prince and Princess of Wales now, who are pretty popular with many of the public. Turning further afield, Roz, China has lifted its zero COVID policy after huge protests across the country. This feels like a win for democracy in many ways, but given you know, given just how draconian the government there was acting and people couldn't possibly be kept under those measures forever, it felt. But how prepared is the country for Omicron to rip for its population? It's not very well prepared. The Chinese healthcare system isn't particularly good and it will struggle with large numbers of elderly people um, who are not vaccinated as much as they are in uh, Britain and uh, even America, for example. It will struggle with those large numbers of people and there will be you know, hundreds of thousands of deaths. That is clear because the vast majority of the country has no immunity from having come into contact with covid and the vaccines that they have produced are not as effective, sadly, as Western ones. By the time Omicron came along in other countries, nearly everyone was vaxxed or had already had an earlier variant of COVID. We don't know what impact Omicron will have in a population that is as naive to the virus as China is. On the other hand, I don't think this is what you would call a triumph for democracy, unfortunately. It would be nice to think it was, but it isn't really. It is an authoritarian regime doing what authoritarian regimes do, which is care about its own survival. The Chinese government has recognised that the controls they had in place were unsustainable and people were not tolerating them. And as a result, it has rode back and is now saying things that it wasn't saying before about Omicron not being such a threat. But there are some quite hard times ahead for China, as there were for all of us in the earlier in the pandemic. Do you think this doesn't actually weaken Xi Jinping's grip over the country then, as it might appear initially, you would think it perhaps is a, a bit of a blow to him, but do you think it's a, 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 tactical, a tactical move instead? I think it's a tactical move. I mean, he does now look perhaps a little fallible. People will wonder why they had to experience such draconian, terrible lockdowns when apparently Omicron wasn't as bad as that after all, and they may well make that connection and feel resentful about it. But he has also shown that he can change his mind, and that can be a strength in a leader. It depends often on the way you look at it and how you feel about the leader already, which way you go. Such is the degree of surveillance in China that the government retains enormous control, not just over people's actions, but it is able to monitor people's thinking through its control and monitoring of social media. It is able to act quite fast uh, in order to try and defray public unhappiness. Now, clearly, it didn't really do that fast enough in this in instance, but it may well have learned from that and it may well be more savvy next time. In Iran, protests have also seen a shift to government policy. The Attorney General there has said the... 
<clears throat> the Attorney General there has said the morality police is to be disbanded. Ros, just how momentous a moment is that? It's pretty important, but I would point out the law itself about the hijab has not been changed. The government has said it's going to look at the law, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily going to change. Also, quite a lot of people protesting have said that they it isn't just about the hijab. It's about regime change. They want to get rid of the current leadership. And this win may embolden them further. Finally, in the US, the Georgia Senate runoff is taking place uh, with incumbent Democrat Raphael Warnock up against Republican candidate Herschel Walker. I saw one poll with the dreaded 48-52 percentage split the other day. Who does it look like is going to win there? It's a very difficult call. I would say that Walker has struggled with some very damning accusations against him. He's been Mm. accused of paying for abortions for ex-girlfriends, despite being nominally anti-abortion himself. It's also, I think, significant that Donald Trump hasn't visited Georgia to support him, even though he is a Trump candidate. And that perhaps shows that Trump can see which way the wind is blowing. But it will be quite close, I think. Even a win for Herschel Walker would still see Democrats control the Senate with the vice president's tie-breaking vote. So why does this matter so much? Why are Democrats pumping so much money into this race? Well, it's partly about momentum, that it makes it feel Mm. as if the Democrats are doing reasonably well, considering it's midterms. And also, you can lose one vote if you're on a knife edge. Uh, if you, you can lose one vote if you've got an extra person, if someone's being difficult and doesn't support a particular mm. piece of legislation and still get your law through. And you also have more control over committees and judicial appointments. So there are tangible advantages for the Democrats in just having that one extra person in the Senate. Ros, thank you for getting up early to join me today. Thank you. And I'm sorry I was a bit throaty. It is it is December in my defense. <laughs> that was Start Your Week out every Monday morning from the bunker. We love starting your week and it's your support that helps us to do that. You can back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll get episodes early and ad-free as well as a shout here on this Monday morning episode. On that note, here is Roz with today's Roll Call of Gratitude. A big Monday morning thank you to Robert Brighton, Chris Love, Alex Rogers and Mark Aylwood. And that's Start Your Week. Thank you for listening. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Jack Gerbertson, Kasia Tomashevich, and me, Alex Reese. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>